Amen. So January is an important time for us. In the month of January, what we do as a church is we talk through our core values, our four basic core values. We use four metaphors for that, air, fire, earth, and water, just to remind us that God is number one in our lives. He has to be number one, as important to our lives as air is to our bodies. And then earth is the metaphor that we are God's clay, his dirt. He gets to shape us however he wants. But when his hands get on us and his breath gets in us, we become miracle dirt, which is a great thing to be. If you've ever felt like dirt, it's because that's how you were made. You know, you started out that way. But when God's hands get on us and his breath gets in us, you become miracle dirt. You become clay that God can shape into something beautiful and amazing. And then we talked about water, how water is the metaphor reminding us that our job is to refresh the world. Our job is to bring the refreshment of Jesus. Jesus and his living water to the world around us. And as it flows through us, we are beneficiaries as we help other people experience it too. And today we're going to be talking about our last core value. The metaphor of fire is our core value of community. And that'll all become clear today as we go through this stuff. But what we're going to be talking about is this fourth major aspect of our church because next week is our Commitment Sunday. And what we do in our church every single year is we wipe the membership rolls clean and we start over. And we say, if you want to be a member of the church, we're asking for a one-year-long commitment. Next Sunday, we're going to be passing out these little cards. It'll have the commitment on it. There are two levels of commitment, one we call membership, one we call associate. And you can sign whichever one of those that you want or neither if if you're not ready to make one of those commitments. And we're going to be talking about that all in detail next week. Plus, we've got it on our website. You can search for Commitment Sunday on our website, and it will help you find the the right uh, kind of information that you're looking for. But next Sunday... Sunday is our Commitment Sunday. And so to prepare ourselves for that, we've been going through these four core values. But there's another thing that we've been trying to accomplish this month, and that is just simply recognizing that at the beginning of every year, we all have goals for ourselves, or at least hopes, dreams, maybe. And we've been talking about the fact that in each one of those dreams and desires, we tend to make ourselves think about the particular goal, like being more wealthy or healthy or being more happy. And, and we think about that particular goal. And our tendency, our temptation, is always to set this as the goal, but then to slide into a false version of it, to slide into an easier version, because happiness takes work, wealth takes work, health takes work. And it's really easy for us to slide into an easier version, a fake version of it. We've been talking about this over the past couple of weeks, that you might be desiring wealth in your life, but it's really easy to slide into debt because debt gives you the feeling of wealth without the actual wealth. And and even though it's taking you farther away from your goal, it still feels okay sometimes, and so we slide into it. And then we were talking about happiness and how you might slide over into entertainment from happiness, because it kind of feels the same, even though it's not truly the same. And and so each one of these weeks, I've been trying to identify to you the, the false thing that we tend to slide into, and contrasting it with the real thing that God wants for us. Because see, the truth of the matter is, even though we might want wealth, and even though we might slide into debt, God wants for us abundance. And it's better than that. It's not just that God wants us to experience abundance, it's that God already is the abundant God. He is the creator of the universe. He owns everything. And so as a result, we don't have to attain abundance, we just have to enter 
abundance. It's not a thing that we have to work ourselves into or earn or, or spend a lot of time on. There's a fast path into it. You can just go right there because God is offering it to you right now. In fact, we learned over the past few weeks that what God wants for us is faster than any of the other options. And we spent 21 days talking about the practice of prayer and fasting so that we could accelerate our spiritual growth. And I'll just remind you, the principle of prayer and fasting is that fasting is when I say no to something, and prayer is when I say yes to God. And so I'm going to say no to some things, and I'm going to say yes to what God wants for me, and the end result is that I experience what I really long for faster. Because even though wealth might take you a long time to get, and debt seems really easy, God's abundance is always present to those who simply recognize it. And so, we've covered a little bit of ground over the past few weeks. We've talked about how we need to say no to my kingdom and yes to God's kingdom. I need to say no to my version of me and yes to God's future version of me. And today, I want to give you another no and another yes. And this is based upon the fact that a lot of times we desire, for lack of a better word, achievement. We want to be able to say, hey, I accomplished that thing. We want to be able to say to ourselves, hey, that thing is done, whatever it might be. And achievement becomes sort of this thing in the middle, this goal that we have. And you might have a particular goal or a particular list of goals, but honestly, a lot of times we don't even care about the specific goals. We just want to feel like we've accomplished something. We just want to feel like we've gained something, like we've earned something or something like that. And our problem is that even though we want achievement or accomplishment, it's really easy to slide into a fake version of it. And the fake version of it is just simply effort. I'm just going to work. I'm just going to work. I'm just going to do another thing. In fact, I know some of you are list people, to-do list people. I'm not a to-do list person mainly because I keep adding things to the list and never checking them off. That's my problem. So I don't like keeping the list. It's just more proof of my failure. But so anyway, I know some of you are list people and you're so much list people that you get such a rush, such a dopamine hit off of checking off that little box or scratching out the line, whatever it is, that I'm, some of you have actually confessed to me that you will sometimes do a thing and then add it to the list just so you can check it off, Right? Right? Some of you are like, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands and admit you do this, but some of you have done this before because effort can sometimes feel like achievement. And I'm just going to do another thing, just get another thing out there, and I'm going to work on something so that I can accomplish something so that I can put it on my list so that I can check it off. And the whole time, God has something better for you. God has something way better for you. Because the reason we want to achieve things is that we want to finish something so we can look back and say, I'm capable. We can look back at that and say, yeah, I can feel good about myself because I've accomplished something. And God has something better for you. What he has for you is called empowerment. The sense that I am capable, that I have the strength I need to do what God calls me to do. So I'm going to ask you to say no to effort, and say yes to empowerment. Specifically, when I'm talking about empowerment, I'm talking about God's own spirit. He has promised to all the people who would follow him power to achieve the things that he has put 
in our lives. Power to achieve his goals in our lives. If God is going to call you to do something, he's going to equip you to do it. And he promises us the power to do it by his Holy Spirit. Now, I know I need to confess something. I was raised in a Baptist church. And in a Baptist church, they like to pretend that the Trinity only has two in it. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because, because so in, at least in the church that I was raised in, the notion of the Holy Spirit was confusing. Because a lot of churches that like really emphasize the presence of the Holy Spirit, those are the churches that would do things like speaking in tongues. And Baptists don't do that. And they would do things like believing that... Uh, the Holy Spirit can maybe heal people, and Baptist churches don't necessarily pray for healing like that. And they would also do things like raising their hands when singing songs. Like, like what is that all about? Man, I remember, I went to this Christian school that was part of the Baptist church that my, my, where my dad was the pastor, and there was this lady, and she would play the piano during our chapel services, and she would, be, she would raise her hand, and I was fascinated at the fact that she could play the piano with one hand up in the air, but I was also offended by it, because what in the world? Doesn't she know this is a Baptist church? And, and she was raising her hand, and, and so anyway, I grew up with sort of a non-awareness of the Holy Spirit at all. You know, the idea of the Trinity is that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're all equally God and yet somehow different. And we don't understand it. There's no way to explain it. There's no analogy that really relates. All of the things that you've ever heard someone say to try to explain the Trinity, they just don't match. They just don't work. And that's the reason why I believe it, because there is no human religion that has come up with anything like this before. And so I have to believe it's coming from God, that God is just simply bigger than I can understand. There's somehow a threeness and a oneness. But I I remember when I was younger and my dad began a message series. I was in junior high, so I was actually like attending church at the time. I wasn't in our children's church program. And he began to do a message series on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was in junior high and I went to a Christian school. I'd been surrounded by church my entire life. And my dad was talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I literally that week went up to my dad and said, Dad, Who's this Holy Spirit? And my dad started explaining it to me. And in my mind, I don't know if he actually did this, but in my mind, I can, I can hear my dad kind of whispering it. Well, the Holy Spirit's like this. You know, it's just, it's just a little bit too awkward for my dad, a Baptist pastor, to talk too much about it. Now listen, he's outgrown that. And uh, he's now, he's pastor of a church that doesn't identify itself as Baptist anymore. And he himself is... Um, He's evolving in his own understanding of the relationship of the Holy Spirit into the life of a Christian, and I think it's much more nuanced now. But anyway, at the time, I remember as a junior higher just being like, Dad, who's the Holy Spirit? Tell me about this. And so he had to explain some things to me, and I'm just fascinated, and all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, you're telling me that the spiritual power of God can somehow be inside me and fill me? And I was like, wow, that sounds exciting. That sounds really interesting. In fact... I decided when I was in high school to start attending the youth group of a different church because my high school didn't do a youth group on Wednesday night, but this other church did a youth group on Wednesday night, and that church had the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I went to that church, and like everybody was raising their hands. 
And they were singing songs with their eyes closed, which is partially because the songs were simple enough that you could actually learn them, as opposed to like the hymns that, you know, it's like, which line am I on? Yeah, and, and I know how to read a hymn now, but seriously, there was a time. Anyway, so I was at this other church, and people are raising their hand. They were even doing the speaking in tongues thing, and I was freaked out, but I was like, I, these people have something that I've never experienced before, and I was hungry for that. I wanted something like that. I even watched the televangelists to try to see what they were talking about when it came to the Holy Spirit. There was this one dude who would like just break into speaking in tongues in the middle of his talk or whatever, and it was fascinating me. And another guy was slapping people on the forehead and knocking them down. I was so fascinated by this whole thing. And I tell you what, when I looked in the Bible and I read the passages about the Holy Spirit, one thing was true. I wanted it. I wanted it. I wanted God's Spirit to be a part of my life a real present reality in my life. And a couple Bible verses really challenged me and encouraged me on this front. I want to share them with you. Here's one from Mark chapter 1. I'll put it up here. It says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is John the Baptist baptizing people, dunking people in water to try to evidence that they were turning their lives over to God and being cleansed from their previous existence, being born again, almost as it were. Let's keep reading. It says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Again, a junior high verse. If your junior higher doesn't want to memorize verses, you are giving them the wrong verses. Eating locusts is a great verse for a junior higher. Anyway, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I was enough aware about the teaching of the Bible that I knew he was talking about Jesus. And so here's his claim. John is like, I'm going to baptize you with water. And as a kid, I was thinking, but he's promising that Jesus is going to come and baptize people with the Holy Spirit. I wanted that. I thought that would be amazing. That would be incredible to have the power of God in me. But then, you know, in my Bible class, we studied the kings, and I saw a couple things that kind of confused me. Here, here's one from 1 Samuel, when David gets anointed by Samuel. It says this, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Yeah, that's what I wanted. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. That sounded cool. So Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And oh my goodness, the Spirit came on David in power. I want that. The Spirit left Saul. What? And now an evil spirit has come to replace him. Listen, I read that passage and I started freaking out. I was scared because, see, you know what this passage tells me? This passage tells me that only one person can have the spirit at a time, right? Right, if, if David's gonna get the spirit, it's gotta leave Saul. And so here's David, he's getting the Holy Spirit and it's gotta come from somewhere so it comes away from Saul. And now since the spirit's not with Saul anymore, an evil spirit comes and replaces it and it's like, holy cow, I didn't want that. I mean, I wanted the spirit, but then I was afraid that he would sometimes leave. You know, that would be terrible. The whole notion of the Holy Spirit maybe only picking one person, I'm thinking, well, who in the church is gonna get it? 
You know, it's, it's, I want it to be me, but I'm a little bit nervous, you know, about that whole situation. And this seemed to indicate to me that only one person could have the Spirit at the time. And it also indicated to me that the Holy Spirit could just simply leave if he wanted to. In fact, David was worried about that same thing. A number of years later, when David was actually established as the king, he had all this authority, he had all this power, and he once abused it. Everyone else was going off to war, but he didn't because he didn't have to. He could say, you guys go and I'll stay back. And so he did. He stayed back and he sees a woman and he says, I think she's pretty. And so he says, I want her. And so someone go get her for me. And they go get her for him. And he sleeps with her. She happens to be the wife of his best friend or one of his best friends. And then she gets pregnant. And oh my goodness, now what are we going to do? So let's take care of this. David doesn't want to deal with it directly. So he has someone else take care of it. And he's like, okay, uh, bring, bring the husband back. Let's see if we can convince him to sleep with his wife so that he won't really recognize what's going on here. But the husband is too honorable. And so David finally says, okay, someone else take care of it. You kill this person or at least put him at the front of the battle so that he dies. And it happens. And so that his best friend, one of his best friends dies. And now the wife is pregnant and David's like, well, gee, she was one of my best friends. She was my best friend's wives. And, and, and so I, I'm going to marry her and I'm going to take her into my house and I'm going to raise this child as my own. And a prophet comes to David and he says, you have done wrong. And David's like, oh yeah, I have. And all of a sudden he realizes it and he's so freaked out because when Saul did something wrong, God took his spirit away from Saul. And so David writes Psalm 51, which is a psalm of him saying, God, I've really messed up, and I've, I'm really sorry. And the key line I want to show you today is right here. David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David was terribly afraid that the Holy Spirit would be taken from him. If the Holy Spirit would be taken from him, then the the power he had just abused would also be taken from him. And he, he wanted to do the power thing right, but at the same time, he was worried that God's Spirit would be leaving him. And And so I read those passages and I'm like, well, wait a minute. What is the deal with the Holy Spirit? I want to experience the Spirit's power in my life. I want to experience the the presence of God in my life. And yet at the same time, I'm worried, you know, that he could just leave me at any moment. Well, I want to highlight for something, highlight for you something that we read from the end of the section in Mark. Mark chapter one, verse eight was the last verse that we looked at. I'll put it back up here. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And here's the difference. When David received the Holy Spirit, it was in the response to Samuel anointing him with oil. I don't know if you're familiar with the process of anointing, but anointing means to take a little bit of oil and to put it on a person's forehead as a symbol, or possibly, in cases of more importance, taking some oil and pouring it onto the person's head. And so this oil, this valuable commodity back then, is being poured out on the person to demonstrate that this person is more valuable than that oil. This person is now going to be more valuable than that oil. It's also symbolic of God's presence coming on that person. So the oil is kind of a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming on that person. And so when David was anointed, that was the picture of God choosing David to be the king. And since there can only be one king, when God chooses David, he is unchoosing Saul. And so the anointing on David de-anoints Saul. And that anointing process is that picture. 
But the anointing is a small amount of oil poured over the head. And John here is saying, but Jesus will baptize you. Jesus isn't going to anoint you. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the difference is that in the Old Testament, the picture was of a small amount of oil representing a temporary arrangement of God choosing you. But the New Testament is a picture of Jesus dunking you completely in the Spirit. I used the analogy this morning at 9 o'clock about the word baptize. In the Greek language, the word baptize means to dip exactly the same way that we would do with an Oreo cookie. You know when you take that Oreo cookie and you dip it in the milk and there's always that moment of dilemma. The moment of dilemma where you have to ask yourself how deep to dunk the cookie, right? Because if you dunk the cookie halfway, then you might be saving your fingers, you know, there's, there's this one method where you just let your fingers go all the way in the milk, and then, you know, the milk has been fingerfied, but at least, you know, at least, at least you're getting all of the cookie to experience the milk, and then you, then you can eat the cookie, but I know most of you do the, you know, you dip a little bit of the cookie in the milk, and then you bite it, and then you turn the cookie, right? And then you turn the cookie, but then you get all the crumbs in the milk from the edge where you had bit it, and so now the question is, how do I, how do I, the answer, in case you're wondering, the right answer is tongs. Or chopsticks. Chopsticks will work just, just as well if you can handle it, but you know, then you're likely to drop it in there. Anyway, so this is, this is baptizing, okay? When you get the cookie all the way into the milk, that's baptizing it. That's getting it all the way dunked. And that's what Jesus wants to do with you and the Spirit. He wants not just to put a little bit of the Spirit on you. He wants to not just identify you as a person with the Spirit. He wants to immerse you. He wants to dunk you. He wants to get you soaking wet with the Spirit. That's the picture of this word. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the question for you and me is, does Jesus have the ability to do that? Does Jesus have the ability to actually do that? Let me show you some of these passages that I think uh, evidence this. Uh, We're reading the same passage we were just at, Mark chapter 1, but just the next verse, verse 9. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. There are two things that are happening here that you've got to recognize. The first one is that when Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism, the Holy Spirit in some visible fashion looking kind of like a dove or something, but in some visible fashion, the Holy Spirit comes and descends onto Jesus so that Jesus and everybody else around him, especially John, recognize that the Spirit has now come upon Jesus. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's God in the flesh. If you've been in church at all, you know this, that Jesus is God who came to earth in the flesh. And then the question is, well, why would God need the Spirit on him? Because he already is one with the Spirit, right? Well, the New Testament is pretty clear. That when Jesus lived his life on the earth, what he did is he took all of his divinity, all of his godness, all of his God authority, and he sort of packaged it up and set it off to the side and chose, by choice, chose to live this earthly life exactly the way we do. And at this point in time, the Holy Spirit of God descends 
onto Jesus and fills him up and begins to lead him. And so at this moment, you see a picture of something happening to Jesus that John had promised would happen to others. So it's happening to him. The Spirit is coming on him, and now the Spirit is leading him. Let's read another passage here. Go to this next one. It says, but when the Pharisees heard what they had heard about Jesus casting out demons and doing miracles, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, listen, there are a lot of different names for the evil powers in this world. Some people refer to the top dog in the evil world as Satan. Some people would use a name like Beelzebub or in this translation, Beelzebul. And it's just the prince of demons. What they're saying is the only reason Jesus has authority over demons is because he is one or because he's filled with one. He's filled with one of the highest demons. And so because Jesus is filled with one of the highest demons, now he can cast out other demons. And Jesus replies, he knows their thoughts. And he says to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Satan can't go against Satan without destroying himself. But keep reading. He says, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Because see, there were other people who were already claiming to drive out demons. And he's like, well, if I'm using Satan to drive out demons, then who are you using? Anyway, so then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what you need to know is that Jesus isn't using the word if here because he doubts it. He doesn't say, I might be using Satan. I might be using the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I'm not sure. He's not saying, if one is true. He's saying, listen, I'm casting out demons. I'm doing these miracles by the Spirit of God. And for the people back then, he is contrasting the Spirit of God to the spirit of Beelzebul or Satan, whatever that, that antagonistic spirit would be. But for you and me, the contrast needs to be that Jesus is casting out demons by the Spirit's power, not by his own intrinsic power. You see, Jesus could have said, I've got the authority myself to cast out demons. He could have said, I don't need anyone else's help to cast out demons. I can just do it. But he specifically says in this passage that he is doing what he's doing by the power of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus was filled with the Spirit. That's how he did his ministry. That's how he did his life. That's how he did what he did. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. So if anyone knows what it's like to be filled with the Spirit, it would be Jesus. Now the second question is, if Jesus is the one who is supposed to be baptizing other people in the Spirit, does he ever say he will? Let's take a look at that. Let's look at this next passage. This one is the beginning of the book of Acts. So the guy who wrote Luke also wrote Acts. Luke, he wrote to a friend of his named Theophilus, and now he's writing the sequel to the book of Luke, and it's called the book of Acts. And it says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he chose, hang on then, hang on a second there. He said Jesus was teaching them through the Holy Spirit. In other words, even Jesus' teaching was something that was coming through the work of the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. 
After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He had to prove to them that he was really alive. It's like, dude, yes, I did die, and yes, I am alive. I'll prove it again. Let's keep going. He says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is making the same promise that John had made before. But now, now it's coming from Jesus' own mouth. He says, and it's going to happen to you, and it's going to happen because my Father promised it. Write this down. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. He promised the Holy Spirit. But let's just keep reading. See what else happens here. Because as you go farther in the book of Acts, we get to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we learn if the promise came about. Here it is. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, talking about the disciples, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the passage where we get our fire metaphor from. Because in this passage, the people who are following Jesus have all gathered together in to one place. And as they are collected together, as they are experiencing community with each other, then the Holy Spirit shows up and he shows up with fire as this sort of symbolic representation that this is a baptism that's different from water. This is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire becomes the metaphor of that. And so what you need to take down from this is that the Spirit actually came. Jesus promised the Spirit and he came. Now, there are a lot of Christians who would feel like they are still waiting for the Holy Spirit. I know that's where I was as a junior higher. I was waiting for this sort of future, spiritual, supernatural moment when the Holy Spirit would show up in my life in some sort of miraculous fashion. I was waiting for my own Pentecost moment. But I want to just draw your attention to the simple fact that this word is in the past tense. The Spirit came. You see, Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to wait here until the Spirit comes. But when the Spirit came, the waiting was over. The waiting was done. There's no more waiting around for the Holy Spirit to finally decide he wants to move in my life. There's no more waiting around for me to somehow do enough things where I can prove to God that I'm really serious about this thing, and then he will let the Spirit flow into my life. There's no more waiting. The arrival of the Spirit happened in the past. And the reason I know that it happened in the past and remains present is what we read next. Because right after the situation where they receive the Holy Spirit and then they begin to speak in other tongues, Peter goes to talk to the people about what had happened. Take a look at this. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Man, I just love the Bible. You need to read the Bible because it's kind of funny. And uh, so Peter replies, Peter replies and he says this. 
He raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. See, the Bible's funny. So, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Old Testament prophecy. Take a look at this. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. This is one of those moments in the Old Testament where the promise happened, the prophecy happened, where God said, I'm going to give my spirit to lots of people at once. It's not just going to be for you, and then I'll take it away from you, and I'll give it to that person, and then it's not going to be that. It's going to be, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all the people who would receive it, on men and women, on old people and younger people. I'm going to pour out my spirit all over the place. We're just, just going to sprinkle it out there. And then Peter keeps talking. Let's see what he says next. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. Jesus has received and he's poured it out just like water. Keep going. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just you who's going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See what he says next. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise that came true on that day remains true from that day forward for all generations, for all people. There is no time where God says, I'm pouring out my spirit, and then I'm going to wait a couple hundred years to pour it out again. And then I'm going to wait a couple hundred years to pour it out again. No, there was a moment in time when God poured out his spirit and he said to the people, this is now the time. The waiting is done and the promise is still active today. And the promise is for me and the promise is for us. You see, it's not just for one individual person. It's not just for one individual person. The promise of the Holy Spirit has always been for the individual in the context of community. And to prove that point even farther, you just have to read a little farther in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. By the time you get down into the 40s, you find this. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Keep going. He says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In the same chapter where the Holy Spirit shows up, the immediate response of the Holy Spirit's presence is now there's more of them and they get together every chance they get. The Holy Spirit drives them to community. So I'm going to share with you something that I think perhaps is obvious, but then I'll also give you just a little bit more proof. If I want to experience the real power, if I want to experience the fullness of God's Spirit, 
I need to be in the community of believers. If I want to experience the fullness of God's Spirit, I need to be in the community of believers. This already makes sense from the stuff we've looked at. Peter says that this, I mean, they were all together in one place when they experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. Peter says you can experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is repent and be baptized. You can join this thing. They do. They repent. They're baptized. They join the thing, and then immediately they come together in the community, and now they're all experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit together, and the same thing is true for you. If you want to experience the fullness of God's Spirit, you need to join the community of believers. I'll prove it to you with just a few more verses. From 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church that is getting the Spirit wrong. They're messing it up in a lot of different ways, and he's correcting them, and he says to them a few very important lines. And here's the first one we're looking at. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. This is an important thing. The the translators of this particular version have done a really brilliant thing because in the original Greek language behind this, There's a singular you, there's a singular body, and there's a singular temple. And so for the literal translation, it's your body is a temple. That's the literal translation. There's just a problem with that. In English, the word you is always plural. There's no singular version of the word you. And since body can mean a collective body of the church, English readers might read this to say, you, the body, are the temple, and that all of us together are somehow the temple. But Paul writes it with singular words, and so the translators have done a really good job of just making both of them plural. And so now it says, your bodies are temples. Your individual bodies are individual temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you as an individual. But of course, that's in chapter 6. In chapter 3, Paul also says this. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? And here, he actually uses the plural word in Greek for you and uses the singular word for temple. Here, he really is talking about all of you together, all of us together are one temple. So each individual one of you is a temple and all of us together are a temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit dwells in me and us. That's the best way to put it. The Spirit dwells in me and also in us. But we have to go just a a little bit further because in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this most profound line. He says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. This is an important line because it involves each individual one of you and it involves all of us together. The truth of the matter is, if I want the manifestation of the Spirit to be in me, it's not for me. Do you see that? If the manifestation of the Spirit is in me, as in each one, it is not for me, it is for the common good. And if the manifestation of the Spirit is in someone else, it's not for them, it's for me, as long as I'm in the common unity that gets to experience that good. In other words, 
I need you and you need me if we are going to experience the presence, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I am not allowed to experience the manifestation of the Spirit in me, to me, and for me all at the same time. The manifestation of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, the reality of the Spirit is supposed to flow through me to you and likewise through you to me. Write it down this way. He works through me for you and he works through you for me. Bottom line, if I want to experience the fullness of God's Spirit, I have got to be in a community of believers. I have to be in the community of believers because the only possible way the manifestation of the Spirit of God is ever going to bless me is if it comes through someone else for me. And the only way I can ever experience the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in me is if it's flowing through me to for them. That's the way it works. God's Spirit works in community. And so we have a statement in our church. We call it the fire commitment statement. And it says this, the spirit dwells in me, but his power is revealed in community. I intentionally prioritize Christian relationships because I have something to give and something to receive. We, as a community of believers, make a commitment to each other. Next week, we're going to be doing it for real, literally. We make a commitment to each other that we are going to live as a community with each other and experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. But this year, we're going to do something different. This year, we're going to kick it up a notch. This year, we're going to take the beginning lines of Acts chapter 2 as literally as we possibly can, where it says, on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. And we are going to leverage the togetherness as much as possible. And we, over these next eight weeks, not including next week, we're going to start it on February 9th, but we are going to leverage togetherness and unity as much as possible. And we are going to have unified worship on Sunday mornings. What I mean by that is we are having one worship gathering, not two. It's going to be at 1015, so y'all got to wake up earlier. Not too much earlier, just a half an hour earlier. It's fine, it's fine, you can handle it. The other people have to come an hour and 15 minutes later. You just have to wake up a half an hour early. I mean, come on, you can do that. But we are going, starting on February 9th, running through Palm Sunday, just before Palm Sunday, March 29th, we are gonna go eight weeks of unified worship where we are going to dig deeply into what does it mean for us to be a community of faith together. Now listen, there's going to be a lot of uh, details that I have to announce next week. Details about how our children's program is going to work, how our youth program is going to work. I don't have time to go through all those details today. I'm going to be making some blog posts this week, and we're going to be doing a little bit more strategizing behind the scenes to make sure all that happens. But I'll tell you what, Next, not next week, but on the 9th when we start this, since there's only going to be one worship gathering, we're going to be focusing on two specific things. Number one, we're going to be focusing on the fact that we are unified community together. And so over those eight weeks, we are going to be celebrating that kind of unity as much as we possibly can and experiencing the presence of God in our midst because we want to be people who are empowered by the Spirit. But number two, we're going to try to do our absolute best to reignite our passion for excellence and to say, we've only got one shot 
at this. We've all, the, each Sunday, we've just got one shot. And so we are going to try to mobilize our absolute best connections team. And we need your help with that. And we're going to mobilize our absolute best Kidopolis team. And we're going to need your help with that. And we're going to mobilize our absolute best worship team. And we're going to need your help with that. Because everything we do during these eight weeks, we want it to be at the absolute best of what we can do because we want to empower the people who visit. The people who come into this place need to know that we care about them and we care about this God that we serve. And so we're going to try to up the ante of enthusiasm in all the aspects of this church. Then, of course, on Palm Sunday, we're going back to two worship gatherings because we have to practice for Easter. And Easter will be two worship gatherings, of course. And it's always been our vision and our dream to continue to moving forward because we want to be a church that can give people the opportunity to come whenever it makes sense for them to come. But for eight weeks, from the 9th of February to the 29th of March, we're going to be unified in worship. So I'll give you more announcements about all that next week. But I just want to invite you. I want to invite you to spend a few moments in prayer right now and to say to your Heavenly Father, what does it mean for me to be more invested in the community of faith? What does it mean for me to be more connected to this community of faith? I'm going to give you a few moments to just reflect on some of those things, to jot down some thoughts on the card, and then we're going to have a final song to close us out. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.